God. It is so good to be back with you all this week. Um, I deeply enjoyed my time away on some lovely warm beaches while you were getting winter storm number like three or four here in Raleigh. <laughs> um, it's just like nice to get in some rest and relaxation. It was nice to go on vacation with some of my dear friends. Thank you to those who guest preached, both Dr. Ponder, Reverend Spencer, and Lynn Blade. We had some great preachers, both online and in the pulpit, and it was so nice um, to get some time away. And so thank you to those people who guest preached. I heard wonderful things about those services, and I'm really glad you let me come back. <laughs> this week, I have to be like completely honest with you all about how I felt when I read this gospel lesson because I read it and I just had like zero desire to <laughs> write or preach a sermon on it. And I think sometimes pastors just really need to be honest about the fact that like we are not always feeling it, right? Like we're people too. And sometimes we don't have anything extremely impressive to say and like I know I know Sarah you literally just back got back from vacation you should be full of inspiration and funny antidotes and like really renewed and ready to share a good word with us and you're right I am full of inspiration I have seen some really strange things <laughs> and I have some really Strange stories for my week and a half-ish away from you all. Um, if you're interested in hearing about how I was surrounded by a really and heavily intoxicated bachelorette party on a plane, or how my best friend's grandma got evacuated from our trip, or how I got rejected by a dolphin, or how I won a free piece of fine art by correctly guessing the weight of a solid bronze camel, um, let me know. Happy to tell you about any of those things. <laughs> but like, not sure any of those are really good preaching illustrations. Maybe the solid bronze camel and like some idolatry things. But like really, I don't have a lot from this trip. I didn't have any like grand Jesus moment. Um, I just feel rested and that is okay, right? Like, we don't need to always have mountaintop experiences. And the truth of the matter is, while I do feel rested and rejuvenated and inspired and have some like really cool new life experiences or strange new life experiences, this scripture just wasn't doing it for me this week. And maybe for some of you, it's not doing it either. Um, there's this line in this passage that says, blessed are you when people who hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and defame you on the account of the son of man. And I read the scripture like four or five times when I sat down and revisited preaching this week. And all that stuck out in my mind was this line that said, blessed are you, when people hate you and they exclude you and they revile you and they defame you on account of the Son of Man. That was all I could remember. And it's not for a good reason. I could remember it because I don't like it. It was a hard stop for me. That is all my brain fixated on. And I was like, don't like that. Nope. No, thank you. Don't want to preach it. Uh -uh. Don't want to touch it. Um, and here's why. 
because I think this scripture could be one that a lot of other people feel that way about too. And this line is maybe one other people could get caught up on because when you're someone who has experienced being exiled or defamed or defaced or on the receiving end of hatred by folks claiming to be committing that um, on behalf of the Son of Man or on behalf of Jesus, it's a rough thing. It's really difficult to read this passage and say, you who've experienced this thing, blessed are you. Because if you've actually been put through this, this truthfully religious trauma of rejection, you don't feel very blessed. This category of people who've been defamed or defaced or received hate on account of Jesus, it is such a broad category. Like so many people could fit into it. And I was thinking about who all could possibly fall into this? And the list is so long. You could be in it because you're LGBTQ, because you're heavily tattooed, because you're a woman, because you don't conform to gender norms. You could fit in this category of people who've been defamed and exiled because you struggle with addiction or you're in recovery because you're a family member of someone who struggles with those things, because you're divorced, because you had a child outside of wedlock, because you had an interracial child, because you have a criminal record, because you dress a certain way, because your job is cliche. Like, the list just goes on and on. There are so many people that fit into this category of being exiled and rejected on behalf of Jesus by the church. And that's why we have churches like Open Table, right? We wouldn't need churches that are so explicit about being welcoming of all people if it wasn't common for people to be unwelcome in churches. I didn't like when I read this passage because I didn't like the idea of having to preach, the idea that people who experience these things are blessed. Because in real life, real time, you don't feel very blessed when they're happening to you. This kind of trauma and hurt is real. And it, for a lot of people, is lifelong in coping and recovering. It is why they leave church and the idea of that being blessed by Christ is really theologically hard to wrap our heads around. It is really difficult to say you are blessed by Christ because you have been on the receiving end of this. And what I mean by that is we can get into like a really slippery slope with it theologically where we think we need to be subjected to this kind of abuse in order to be blessed or we think that this kind of abuse is indeed blessed by Christ, where we think the only people who fit into this category of being abused are people who are blessed by Christ, right? We might think, well, the only people who are blessed by Jesus right now in this moment are those who've been rejected religiously. Do you see kind of why like maybe this passage makes me really uncomfortable and I struggled with it. And I was just like, no, I won't touch that one. Unfortunately though, um, being a pastor means you literally get paid 
just struggle with these types of things. And I firmly believe a really important part of the Christian life is struggling with hard things and truths and theologically slippery slopes. So I want to be someone and I want us to be a place, a church where we look at hard things and we interrogate them and we try to make sense of them. We don't just turn away from them and we don't just let them harm us more. So I did what I often do when I get to this tricky point, which is I go to the internet <laughs> or to my bookshelf and I read commentaries of what people who are different than me and smarter than me and who've wrestled with this text too, what do they have to say about this? When I read today's scripture, I realized we're faced with something that is very black and white. At least it looks like it's really black and white. We get a list of these four blessings. Jesus offers a blessing for the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the persecuted for Christ. Those are the four blessings. And then we get four woes. And those woes are for the rich, for the full, for the laughing, and the well-spoken of. And we can assume, presumably, that those doing the persecution mentioned in the first group fall in the second category. So it's pretty evenly divided. And we think, okay, everybody in this category is over here and everybody in this category is over here. And there's just a line drawn down the middle, right? They don't overlap, overlap, they don't intersect, they don't high five, <laughs> they just are separate. Um, these two lists just seem really perfectly divided based upon who will be blessed and who's doomed to live in woe. Um, those on whom God apparently looks with favor and those on whom God frowns upon, right? We use these categories to make sense of this passage. And as I read other people and smarter people's thoughts this week, I realized that that really isn't the best way to think about this scripture. Because when we really think about it, these two divisions are not at all comfortable, right? I talked about this a little bit because who wants to live completely on this side where you have to be poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted in order to be blessed. Like who wants to voluntarily do that? Not a lot of people. On the flip side, we also don't want to be considered condemned if we are rich, full, happy, and accepted, right? We don't want to be people who just because we're wealthy or we're full or we're laughing or we're, I don't know, maybe feeling a little self-righteous we're gonna be people in, royal, in woe, because then we feel like, oh, well, I have to cry, and I can't be happy, and I can't be wealthy or successful. Um, neither of these categories are super desirable. If we read these texts as two very different alternatives of what we have to choose from, I feel like we would be people who ditch Christianity and Jesus altogether. I mean, truthfully. Because both of these realities are just, like, not doable. They're not desirable ways to live. And here's where my Google search <laughs> really got me this week. And it blew my mind, and so I'm hoping it will blow your mind. Are you ready for this one? Drum roll. 
The problem here is that we assume these two divisions, these two sides. We assume that Jesus has looking at these two different realities, that he's living in that way. But the truth of this scripture is that Jesus isn't describing two different groups or realities or ways of life. He's describing one. Jesus, for this entire conversation, is addressing the same audience. And now what, what this means is, if I can break it down even more, is we think there's a group here and a group here. But the scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us Jesus turned this way and said, blessed are you. And then turned the other way and said, woe is you. It's not a holy like cha-cha slide. Um, Jesus talks to the same group of folks the whole time. We tell us, the scripture only tells us Jesus healed everyone there, blessed or woe, woed, blessed or woe receiving, somewhere in there. And he turned to his disciples, which could be any or all of these people, and spoke, blessed are you, woe is you. He's looking in the same sets of eyes at the same faces to say both the blessings and the woes as an actual description of their reality. Because Jesus isn't looking at two divided groups, he's thinking of a reality where both these blessings and these woes can face the same person, where they can exist within the same person and within the same group of people. It's a reality not of these like strict divides and black and white categories, but it's a reality of really unclear categories and blurred lines. Maybe Jesus isn't talking to eight different people. Maybe he's talking to four. And this one has a blessing and a woe, and this one has a blessing and a woe, and so on and so forth. This passage isn't stiff and unmoving. Jesus is really ambiguous. He is not black and white. And that's not just for this passage. That is in general. Jesus is ambiguous. And we see the blurring and how some of these categories actually flow into one another. When we start to think about it, this passage says there's a promise for the hungry that they will be filled. But then there's a woe in that the full will be hungry. And then this passage says the promise for the weeping is they will laugh. But the promise for the laughing is they will mourn and weep. If these predictions are to be fulfilled, then you're just going in a circle, right? The positions just switch. And then you get here and then you go here. And if you're here, you go here, but you're going to go back over here. Like, it's moving. The formerly hungry become full and the weeping become laughing. And then they move through those things again, we assume, right? It's not static. There's some sort of flowing movement, perpetual circle happening in what Jesus is saying. The truth of this passage and what Luke is saying to us, what Jesus is saying to us through Luke, is that we just can't put people into categories and be done with it. The truth of the ambiguity of this passage is so frustrating. Perhaps even more frustrating than having to pick between this divide and this divide. Because it tells us that the holiest people 
are worthy of sin and the worst people are holy and worthy of redemption. It's the root of modern cancel culture to think you're here or you're here and once you get over here, you're done. Modern cancel culture, the modern world draws lines and divides and Jesus isn't doing that, y'all. He's looking at the whole crowd and saying, you are blessed and you are broken. You are a saint and you are a sinner. You're going to move through this circle. This passage from Luke tells us that we are all sinners in the depth of our souls. And we can only be made saints through the gifts of Jesus. That we're all sinners and we all have woes and we all can be blessed. It's really important, I think really important, to go back to what I was talking about in the beginning with the parts of this passage that just make like my skin crawl. It's really important that we realize that while Jesus is talking to the same group of people, that this is a common identity. And Jesus calls us to live in the light of realizing this is a common identity. That shouldn't be an excuse for abuse or a reason not to hold someone accountable, right? Turning the other cheek does not mean passive victimhood and prayers for an abuser should be offered from a distance. This passage tells us that we're all existing in the same giant wave pool. And it's okay if you need to be really far away from somebody else in the pool. The point is not to continue to try to divide us further, but to realize Jesus is actually lumping us all together as being capable of blessing and woes. Doing good to those who hate is the opposite of letting hatred go unchallenged. In fact, it's the ultimate way to challenge it and it's okay if you gotta do good from really, really far away and it's okay if good for you looks like just not punching them today <laughs> or punching them and then saying, my bad, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> this passage calls us to rethink what it is to love, um, which is fitting because it's Valentine's Day. Um, and it calls us to a love that realizes that firm, strict lines are not of Christ. Love calls us to drive out hate and fear. And to not do that by defining others as bad compared to our good. We do it by witnessing to the hope of Christ and to witnessing to the fact that we don't have to be perfect to be loved. We do it by realizing that when we stop saying, I'm over here and you're over here, and instead we're all sitting in the same crowd, that we're all subject to the downfalls of being human, and rather than pitting against one another, we should be pitting against the thing that make people in this category over here of woes. It's when we're people who see and truly believe that we're all sitting in one big pool. That we understand we're people who have woes and can be blessed. That's when we really start to love like Christ. 
because it's realistic and it recognizes the deep humanity that we all hold. It recognizes that love sees someone as they truly are and it holds them accountable when who they are is harming those people over there, right? This is hard news, friends. After all of my googling and thinking, I still don't love this passage because it makes me work and it makes me think and it makes me realize that the hard lines that I and other people create aren't real and they're not of Jesus, but it's good. It is so, so good. And I want to invite you to keep thinking about it and being challenged by it and trying to love both the blessing and the woe that each of us holds in our being. Amen.